2: And greetings. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Day Show podcast for Westwood One powered by CRTV. My name is Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here as well. We would love it if you joined us too by letting us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E and we just finished the Steve Day Show CRTV version. As we are getting set to embark on the podcast here today, let's give the audience a tease of what's coming up today on CRTV. Aaron, I'll start with you.
0: Fake news or not, I think at least for one of the clips that we played should be uh, renamed Understatement of the Year Award um, because what uh, what Britt Hume said today on Fake News or Not is definitely the understatement of the year.
2: Yeah, indeed. Uh, danger, yeah. Will Robinson, uh, so to speak. Todd? Well, we talked about what
1: amounts to uh, being a traitor. And I think uh, there's the formal legal sense, and there's just the douchebag sense. (laughs) Nice.
2: And if that's not in the U.S. code, by golly, it should be. Well, it's not, you're not a traitor worthy of hanging. We just want America to know you're pretty much a DB, right? Is that what you're kind of saying? Exactly. Yeah, I like that. So if you are not yet a subscriber to CRTV... Today is a great day to figure out who's the DB in question, right? Uh, CRTV.com, promo code DACE, D E A C E, and that'll get you a discounted subscription to CRTV, not just our show, but all of the shows that we offer each day here on our channel, including the great one Mark Levin, Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty fame, and, and, and a cast of what is literally almost becoming thousands now. CRTV.com, promo code DACE, and yes, we do have monthly subscription options as well. Before we get into today's Theology Thursday, I want to give a little correction to something I said, uh, I think it was on the podcast yesterday, talking about uh, the Senate map. And I made an illusion. I think one of the questions we got on buy-seller hold is how many se- is it possible the Republicans could gain three or four seats? And I was just without having the map in front of me. I was just doing some quick from memorization. Look at what I what seats are up this year that I think are winnable for Republicans. And I mentioned Missouri, which is up and is winnable. But I had I, I conflated, and I want to thank our Chris Pandolfo at CR for pointing this out to me. I conflated the Missouri governor, um, uh, which is Greitens is the governor that has had the affair and then allegedly blackmailed the woman by threatening her with uh, releasing nude photos of her if she went public with Howley, who is, or Hawley, who is, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, who is the actual candidate Republican nominee for U.S. Senate there. All right. So thank you for bringing that to my attention, Chris. And that correction is duly noted because that's a pretty big mistake obviously um that's not tomato tomato one guy is a proven douchebag the other guy is just running for senate where he may prove he is one once he gets there but 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 because that's happened all too often but as of this particular point in time has not done so so should not be confused with the governor of the state who has clearly proven he already is are we clear on that one, do you think? Yes. Maya culpa has been done, so thank you, Chris. And when we do make mistakes, we kind of like to make our corrections right at the outset of a show rather than in fine print at the very end when nobody's paying attention, right? So uh, correction uh, has been made. It is a Theology Thursday here on the Steve Day Show podcast. and And this week, we're going to answer a theological question we received from a listener. Robin writes... You guys were talking about how the other side doesn't give up, meaning the other side of the uh, uh, cultural chasm in America. They lose, they dust themselves off, they keep pushing forward, and I thought about the reason why. It's because they believe that we have come from cosmic dust, and look how far we've come, and we're now continuing forward on this imaginary path that they believe went from nothingness to fantastic civilization, or as Todd, you would call it, utopia. They believe, they really believe, that we're heading towards Todd Utopia, heading towards perfection, towards the elimination of sin and evil and disease and everything bad. So setbacks are just a natural part of the battle for them. But they are confident that they are going to win, so they just keep fighting. Let me pause there for a second. What, what Robin is alluding to is why worldview is so very important. Because... Robin has correctly deduced That is the driving impulse of the other side that is the driving impulse of, of secular progressives This world is all they have and so they will fight to the death for it and They have to make it right they have to they have to refashion it reform it in the image of what they believe is right It's pardon the expression. It's their purpose-driven life there's nothing else to look forward to there, there, this isn't I'm passing through there is no in the world not of it this is it and so you will pry this world from their cold dead fingers to quote the late great Charlton Heston Robin goes on to say you have pointed out our side has no such utopian optimism And this is where I'm going to ask for you to bear with me in a request. I think you should do a show on eschatology. Let me stop right there. Screeching tires. Yes, I'm stabbing myself.
0: All right. Come again? You hear that sound? They're already <laughs> typing a billion emails to you.
2: The audience can't see because it's on podcast, but I'm, I'm doing that same Twitch I did yesterday when I asked Daniel Horowitz on CRTV, do we actually owe Mitch McConnell a debt of gratitude? Because you know how much bile I had to swallow to even have such words come forth from my pie hole. But I'm doing it again. I, I've got eschatology and I have a love-hate relationship. All right? I love to study it and hate it at the exact same time because eschatology has a way of making freak shows of us all. But Robin is requesting that we discuss this topic, not for endorsing one particular eschatological view, Robin says, but we need to talk about the fact that in the eschatology most Christians hold to, Christians believed the kingdom of Christ was reigning on earth now, and that things were getting going to get better and better. So when we had setbacks, we were motivated to keep forward. That is not the eschatological view. Robin points out, driving many Christians today. Now we believe things are just going to get worse and worse. So when things uh, we suffer, so when we suffer setbacks, we think th- there's nothing we can do to stop it, and we completely give up. I think this topic can be discussed without endorsing one eschatological view or another, but simply by asking the question, even discussing the fact that we have this idea and that this is the effect of this idea that most Christians believe in America today, and simply looking at the cause and effect without coming down and endorsing one view or the other. As the proverb says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Again, that is from Robin. Robin is right. He managed to thread the needle there.
1: I mean, could, is that the only way an email could have been written to get us to talk about this? Yes, I think
2: so. yes, yes. yes. That, that To get us to talk about it, what, I've done interview shows before in the past where I've interviewed different perspectives on the issue and, you know, asked critical questions politely of each side's position and let the audience hear them. But I, I will not do a show advocating one position or the other. Uh, I just will not. It, it just makes freak shows of us all. I don't even know what my own position is. My official eschatological position is uh, it's complicated. That's that's my uh, official position. Skeptical. If I could put it into one word, I'm skeptical of everybody's dogmas on this issue.
1: You'd rather sit at the red bandana table in Deer Hunter than do this? Uh.
2: Uh, almost. 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 <laughs> All right. I, I, I think that there are troubling aspects for me as a guy who has is a layman, but I would consider given the amount I've studied, a fairly informed one. I'm no expert, though, but I'm a fairly informed layman enough that I, I, I'm confident going into hostile environments and defending my faith without with little to no fear. Except when this topic comes up, and then I have a, a lot of fear of defending it in front of other people who believe exactly the same way I do about a lot of other things, because this makes makes you all nuts. It just makes you all cray cray. Okay, I've literally been on a layover in the Charlotte airport and had color coded Rapture chart guy confront me, in, 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 in you know outside of a store. All right, who recognized me from a TV show that actually happened a few years ago? My wife was with me. All right, I mean this is this i i've had people try to convince me people i respect tony blair was the false prophet because they had done a genealogy of his mom not making that up you're oh. laughing yeah <laughs> the catholic is going to laugh yeah this is the this is catholics laugh at us about this the way we laugh at them about like fatima prophecies and <laughs> yes. we see mary in the sand dunes right this is our version of this as protestants this is why no one gets a high horse in these debates okay all right by the way i'm not saying all fatima pro- prophecies are illegitimate but i believe i've read about 28 different interpretations now of the fatima of the three fatima prophecies and that still pales in comparison to how many Different interpretations of just one aspect of premillennial eschatology. I've read from Protestant scholars in the past. All right, there. There are just some things native to our theological tribes that force us to lose our minds. And for evangelicals,
0: this topic is it. Aaron, am I being too tough on our tribe? Absolutely not. No, this is this is why uh, I make the joke all the time when I. <laughs> see something about uh, somebody trying to ascend to power in the United Nations or something to do with the right. European Union, I say, oh, time to dust off the old left behind books, see what's going to happen next. That's, that's why I make that joke all the time, because left behind really is how it's all going to go down, right? We
2: were told when the European U- Union was being discussed when I was in college in the early 90s, we were to- and that was Iraq. We were in the first Iraq war, and that's Mesopotamia. That's, you know, a place of very uh, huge biblical history, significance. and the reformation of the Roman Empire, that this is the final. These are the feet reformed on Daniel's statue, and the European Union was the new Roman Empire. The European Union is like disintegrating, as we speak, by the way. OK? 15, 25 years later, since we had those conversations. Uh, we, we've done this a million times. Okay, the number six 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 is the actual Roman numerology of Nero's name. It's also, though, the Roman numerology of Ronald Wilson Reagan and a lot of other people too. Okay, so I'm going to try and do this because I, I think Robin's point is hugely prevalent in how in the application of worldview with today's events. That is part and parcel with our show, and I think it is important to lay this out as neutrally as we can as informed as we can without admitting up front we are not experts just informed laymen. but there's something to Robin's point that I think should be explored and I want to give an example and I've cited it before on our show and for those of you that are new to our podcast you probably haven't heard me talk about this before several years ago I was driving around here in town and there was a very divisive issue going on in our state legislature and I was taking care of some errands over the noon hour and I was listening to a local Christian talk radio show. And the woman hosting the show was noting this very divisive cultural issue going on at the legislature and urging her audience to get active. She was giving out the numbers of, of calling the main switchboard. She was walking her audience through how you can avoid, avoid just sort of being passed off. All right, but can actually get to at least the clerk of your legislator. I mean, she was, she knew her stuff, man. And she was walking you through the excuses you'll hear and everything else and how to preemptively answer those objections. She spent several moments, I was very impressed. She spent several moments coaching her audience on how to do effective activism right from their own home in the dead of winter that's when our legislature only isn't a year round event here in Iowa Um, depending on when they can get the budget done it's usually over with anywhere from late April to mid june and most of the work the funnel date meaning the date that determines which bills will ultimately get voted on by the end of the session is like by Valentine's Day so the dead of winter the dead of winter well Steve they did that because most people aren't paying attention well actually our legislature was set up around the farming calendar originally because that's our state we're an ag state when are farmers, who are going to be a lot of the rural legislators, when are they the least busy? Dead of winter. Okay, so that's why we do it that way. Um, and, and so it's not always convenient to get down to a to the legislature and, and lobby in person in the middle of January in Iowa. So she was effectively coaching them how to do this from their own homes and have their voice be heard. And I was very impressed. And then if she got done coaching her audience, which I would guess is largely stay-at-home moms, Christian stay-at-home moms during that, that are listing during that time of, of the day, who of course, that means they've got husbands, kids, maybe careers, or maybe their home, managing the home is their career. Needless to say, the last thing, regardless of their life's circumstance, the last thing most of her female audience probably needs is something else on the to-do list. You know what I'm saying? Okay? So, if you're going to give them something else to do, you got to help them see the priority in it. And she was showing them how dramatically important this issue was and walking them through how to be effective in having their values and their voices heard. And then after she did this for several minutes, she then did this. But we know in this Laodiocian age of the church, things will just get worse no matter what we do. And I thought, imagine I was in my car listening to this, and I thought, what would happen if I tried driving my vehicle by pushing the gas and the brake at the exact same time? Would I get to my eventual destination, gentlemen? No. I would spin out. It, uh, either, either the car would stall, or I would just ultimately just rev RPMs in place. But would I be gaining any ground, would I be advancing toward my destination under that scenario? No. No. Would my car be working really hard if I did that? Would it work really hard? Yes. Yeah. Uselessly. Yeah, yeah. it's not, it's not accomplishing anything. I'm not doubting its work ethic. I'm just saying it's not accomplishing anything. It's working really cotton-picking hard. Okay, even extra hard, because by pushing the gas and the brake at the same time, it can't figure out what I want to do. Do I want to stop? Do I want to idle? Do I want to aggressively move? And that's why those RPMs are revving higher, because I'm putting more strain on the engine. But I'm not going anywhere. I'm not I'm not arriving at any destination. I'm the car's working really hard. I'm pushing the pedals with all my might, but nothing is happening except an exertion sound and fury, as Paul would say, signifying nothing. And if I'm that mom sitting at home in the dead of January in rural Iowa listening to this woman's show and I'm all fired up and then you tell me, well, it won't make a difference anyway. Why would I try to make a difference then? Or if I remain in the game to try and make a difference? How do I concoct a strategy for ultimate victory when my stated belief system tells me ultimate victory isn't attainable? How would I do that? And so I think this is very important as a question. Now, I don't want to put words in Robin's mouth but the assumption I think from Robin is that one particular eschatological view leads to has more of a tendency to lead to political activism wins than another and I don't I'm just going to tell you given my extensive experience I don't believe that's true either and that's one of the reasons why I haven't lined up with any particular eschatological view despite the fact I have troubling questions for all of them I think there's strong evidence for many aspects of what's called a preterist view meaning many of the things that Revelation was written by the Apostle John sometime around 60 AD and many of the events that he foretold like the seven hills are things that, that took place during the persecutions of 70 and 110 AD and aren't meant to happen in the future. I think there's a lot of strong evidence for that. The problem, though, I think, with carrying that to its ultimate conclusion is Paul, when he, when he encounters the church at Thessalonica, they believe they have missed the second coming. And he is writing them, you haven't missed anything. And one of the things he tells them to look for in the future is the man of lawlessness will be revealed. He's clearly speaking in a futuristic construct there. Okay. Um, and I could do this with all of these viewpoints. We can go back and forth on all of them. I'm just giving you one example of how I think there are legitimate contrarian objections to just a couple of popular viewpoints that are out there. Okay. But, and I could even point out through the history of the church, we have had a tendency to adopt. Now, what do I, let me even just pause. Some of you, what's with what ex eschatology? It just means it's Greek. Esca is, is a Greek meaning end of time, end times, ology meaning study of. It just simply means the study of the end of time, the end of days, all right? How Christian the Christian worldview believes history comes to its ultimate conclusion. That's all that it means. And it's important to do so. Jesus commanded his followers to study the signs of the times, all right? One of the last sermons he gives before he is arrested is what's called the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Matthew where he is laying out the signs of the times and when to look for his return. All right, so it's a very important subject in Christendom. It's also been a long debated divisive one and one of the reasons it's been divisive is because when you look at the history of the Christian church, what you're going to find is the general conventional wisdom on eschatology, not always, but tends more often than not to line up with the cultural conditions that a majority of the church is facing at the time. So if you go and read the, Old, you go and read the New Testament, and they, it's clear they believe they're living in the end times in, in much of the ways they're writing. But they're living under a constant persecution as well. Hard to envision that this could go on. If you're living under Hadrian, Nero, hard to understand. If you're being boiled in hot oil like John, beheaded like Paul, crucified upside down like Peter, thrown to ravenous wolves. Was that Philip or was that somebody else that I'm trying to think of? But if these were the deaths that these apostles faced, hard to envision in your mind that this could, that, that this could go on for another 2,000 years when you're living in those conditions. We fast-forwarded several hundred years. Rome goes from persecuting Christianity to essentially propagating it. Constantine, Eusebius, you go to Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, whose works were probably the most profoundly influential on the Christian church other than Paul himself by anybody Who didn't physically encounter Christ for the first 1,000 years of the church, and you can argue into the second millennia now. Many of the reformers of the Protestant Reformation, many of their ideas of single predestination, things of that nature, they took from Augustinian theology. And so now Rome is friendly, Rome is the empire, it is the world, it's friendlier to Christianity. It eventually adopts Christianity, its official religion, and we get this idea of, of two kingdoms or what later has now known as amillennialism. This is Augustine's city of God. And this comes, a lot of it comes from the parable of the weeds that Jesus told where a farmer is awakened in the dead of night and his servants say to him, hey, there's all these weeds that have grown in your crops. And the farmer says, an enemy has done this. It's a parable. He's referring to the enemy as the devil. And the servants say, should we go out there and pick these weeds out? And the farmer says, no, they will just grow side by side until the end where one will be separated from the other. And that's this notion that the city of man and the city of God exist, coexist, vying for the affections. This is not a perfect hermeneutic of Augustine, but that would take nine shows. I'm trying to make this as generic as I can. Okay? And I know people are going to complain. That's another reason not to do this. All right? I'm sorry. If you can do it better, get your own podcast. I'm doing the best I can. All right? Okay. Work with me. All right? But it's this idea that the city of God and the city of man essentially are like two magnets with, that are pulling at each other and are, are, are vying for the hearts and minds of the, of the people. And at the end of time, Jesus comes back, there's a judgment of sheep and goats, and the matter is settled. That's a far more optimistic view than the fatalist one that the, the early church fathers had. But they, Augustine was also living in a far more favorable time. And there is script, scriptural evidence for his position, just like there is, was, I'm sure, scriptural evidence for the position of the, of the early church. Well, then we get further into the future. We have a Protestant Reformation. We come out of, we come out of the Inquisition. We come out of the Middle Ages. We, we come out of the Dark Ages. We come out of the plagues. We have a printing press. We have technological advances. The, the, the scriptures are being translated in the common everyday languages of most of the known peoples of the world. We're sending more missionaries out than we had since the, day, the days of the early church. Quote-unquote savages are being converted, meaning, you know, pagan peoples, essentially. And now we have a more optimistic view, this idea that the church can triumph in history. And this became what we now know as post-millennialism. This was the eschatology that drove the puritans to jump on a rickety boat and come here. And when they use language in the Mayflower Compact of establishing for the for the kingdom of Christ. Those are terms right out of the postmillennial theonomy. Uh, what's theonomy? The idea that any human law that does not justify with God's law should be rejected. And that human laws, as often as possible, should align with God's law. So they are making theonomical, post-millennial statements right there in the very founding charter document of the first people, Christians, to settle America. Right then and there. And this was the driving viewpoint. The idea that we could create a, where'd they get the language, city on a hill and all this kind of stuff. This was the idea that, that, that this would be a place where the church would have as a beacon, a landing spot to export Christianity to fulfill its post-millennial mission to usher in the return of Christ. That history undeniable. Several years ago, my wife was had to take a class in eschatology to finish her master's in theology at Lutheran Seminary, and her professor was a was a virulent premillennialist. The idea that things get worse before they get better, that we're living before Christ's premillennial reign—that's what "pre" means. And she's like me, she doesn't, uh, she's tried to have positions and just gets infuriated with everybody's dogma on this. And her final paper, she had to write her eschatological position. I said, you know what you should do? Everybody's going to write, because the guy, I would listen to the guy's lectures with her and he would say stuff like, "Um, I have the same eschatology Jesus had. So exceedingly arrogant about his own view. I said, what you should do is everybody's going to write a paper kissing this guy's we we're in. You should write a paper how there would be no United States of America without theonomy and post millennial eschatology. And I'll help you come up with all the source material to do it. And she did. She got an A on it, by the way. Okay. Nice. She, 20 pages she did on that. She did it herself, too. I just helped her come up with the source material and she wrote the thing herself. Then we fast forward again. We have the Industrial Revolution, poor houses no middle class the divide of rich and richer gets bigger robber baronism the inf- the influx of darwinism and social darwinism into the elite academic and rich classes the idea is that they can that they can now use the poor and downtrodden they don't have to serve those people but they can use them to their own advantage we get into world war one 30 million people who didn't even fight in the war die trench warfare gas warfare weapons of mass destruction things the world had never seen and you get John Nelson Darby and the Schofield Bible comes from the era right, be, right, in, right in between the Industrial Revolution creating a great divide between the haves and the have-nots and World War I. And this notion of premillennial eschatology takes hold. And that the world's going to get worse no matter what. And if you're living in that time period, man, easy to buy that. Hard to, hard to believe there's anything worse than the war to end all wars. And right around this time in history, what happens is a lot of the Protestant church goes liberal, particularly the Reformed churches do, and become the, what's, quote, the mainline Protestantism. They go social gospel, like what you're watching happen within evangelicalism today. And, and, the, and, the, and the denominations within Protestantism that hold on to the fundamentals, this is where the term fundamentalist comes from. These two wealthy business guys were concerned about the church losing its way in America. And so they spent their own money to send Bible tracts all over the country to reassert the fundamentals of the Christian faith. That's where this name comes from. The denominations that held on, most of them that held on to the fundamentals of the church while the main line was going liberal, just so happened to be denominations heavily influenced by Moody Bible and the Schofield. Moody Bible and and, and the great evangelist D.O. Moody, you've heard me quote him numerous times. And the Scofield Bible, particularly the Scofield Bible commentary notes on what Revelation means, which was heavily influenced by the Plymouth Brethren, Darby, and premillennial eschatology. And so, it only makes sense that if you're one of those, if you're in those, if you're if you're a Christian holding on to the fundamentals of the church, and you belong to a denomination that adopts these traditions, you will be heavily influenced by them. And sooner or later. As, as fundamentalism evolves eventually into evangelicalism every, these denominations, Southern Baptist Missouri Synod Lutheran then we have the Azusa Street Revival in the early 20th century and Pentecostalism comes in these are all denominations heavily influenced by these teachings and so therefore this becomes the conventional wisdom eschatology of the church now into the era in which we live How Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth is the best selling nonfiction book of the 1970s Left Behind is one of the greatest selling fiction series in the history of American publishing. And, and I'm giving you an extreme layman's generic context of how we got here. The premillennial view, and within these views, there's post trip, pre trip, mid trip. I'm not going to get into all that. Essentially, the premillennial view is we are living in the time before Christ's millennial reign. And things will get worse before he returns. To rapture his church, to save it, either before there's a great tribulation, in the middle of a great tribulation, or after it has endured the great tribulation. That's what pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib means. This is the left-behind view, the idea that there's an antichrist who makes a pact with Israel and things that you've seen in a lot of uh, popularized Christian fiction and storytelling in in our modern era. All right? All right. Since a lot of the conservative evangelicals are Pentecostal and Southern Baptist, this tends to be the driving eschatology of many Christians in politics. They tend to think they cannot win, and they will not win. Then there is what's called amillennialism, and this is the idea that much of this is metaphorical language, and Todd, you're free to correct me on this, because this is largely a view held by some reformed protestants but this is predominantly the catholic eschatology correct okay yeah well, okay this is the very idea, loosely yes okay and this whole conversation should be taken very loosely for the purposes of, of setting up a political conclusion this is the idea of the city of man the city of god these two and enterprises coexist largely not peacefully until jesus returns And that much of the apocalyptic language of the scriptures is to be taken, is the literal word of God, but not to be taken literally. Like an amillennialist amillennialist will say stuff to you like, when the Bible says the Lord Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills, does that mean if we get to the one thousandth and first hill, the Lord does not own that cattle? Of course that's not what it means. This is apocalyptic, you know, metaphorical imagery. You guys are taking things literal that were not meant to be. They were they were colloquialisms, euphemisms, word pictures. Do I have that view correct?
1: Well, yeah. The most and one of the ironies of all this is one of the reasons we take an a millennial stance is because we take something more literally, or certainly literally, in a far different sense than you take it. I mean, I asked not to put you on the spot, but you like these kind of questions. What is the thing? That the Catholic Church holds up as its supreme sacrament—that the reason that pulls us out of this—is
2: a supreme sacrament, our, our, the Eucharist. The Eucharist, that
1: what, yeah. the, We have, we claim to have, the perusa, of the second coming of Christ in the form of a, a priesthood according to Melchizedek, body blood, soul, and divinity. But it's a it's a it's a sacrifice that has to be eaten, just like the great uh, sacrifices uh, of the Old Testament. I I offer my own layman's version of that. But but that's why Catholics are pulled out a bunch of this. We believe we have
2: a form of the Second Coming already. Okay, this is an important view to understand because. Um, I, I can't remember the last time there's been an evangelical on the U.S. Supreme Court. Your best conservative justices: Scalia, Thomas, Alito. What are they? Catholics. Catholic. And you and I, when yep.
1: we were first becoming friends, had I remember distinctly this conversation we had over lunch, and you pointed that out.
2: Yeah. So uh, you're gonna. This is a driving notion um, within Orthodox Catholicism, and therefore. It, 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 you have to assume if, when you have orthodox Catholics in positions of power like in Alito like the late great Scalia things of that nature that this would be this catechesis would be infused into their own worldview alright um, and that is essentially there's this tension between the kingdom of the city of man and the city of God that as, as the Eucharist says, yes, we can. We have a, we have a, we have an aspect of the second coming now, but it's still not yet at the exact same time, that's right? All right, and that's that's this tension that yes. you sometimes see. Okay, exactly. Uh, and 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 so if you wonder sometimes why why some of your why really smart conservative Catholics seem willing to. I don't. I want to use the right wording here. I'm really trying not to game any system because I'm not on anybody's team with this, which makes it almost harder because I'm trying not to offend everybody. At the exact same. I know it goes so <laughs> against our nature. We're screwed. I, I no can't, matter what. I suck at not offending you. I can't <laughs> do this. But if you wonder sometimes why they maybe aren't as willing to go um, thermonuclear some of, at times, when maybe you have, depending on your evangelical tribe, you may be willing to, it's because there is a built-in expectation that there will be some tension between the city of man and city of God until Christ returns to ultimately settle that tension. Is that, and that Is you, that fair?
1: I think you've got it, and because I'm okay. so not like that, that's why one of the greatest compliments I ever got from a listener of the show is like, you're the most Protestant Catholic I've ever heard <laughs> okay.
2: of. Um, okay, I'm, uh, that's all I'm trying to do is, is be as fair as I can possibly be. All right, You did great. Then there is the post-millennial view, which is this idea that the church is triumphant in this age and that will ultimately usher in once it has it and that is the ultimate conclusion of matthew 28 the church has it has fulfilled its great commission and once that happens that will then usher in the return of christ okay um and this is a conservative reformed view and um, I mean, and this comes right out of the Geneva Bible, Protestant uh, uh, Puritan tradition that was large, that was that was hugely consequential in the founding of America. Here's what I have found working with, and and there aren't too many. There's not nearly as many cons- conservative reformed people in politics as there are the other two views, because there's just not as many conservative Reformed people in general after many of the Reformed churches. What I mean by Reformed? Denominations formed after the Reformation. Many of them went liberal and have became mainline Protestant to flat-out her- heretical now. And so the numbers of post just simply are, aren't there. But I've, having known people in all three camps, this is what I have seen about the way they take what they the the eschatology they espouse and translate it politically. And this is this is a generalization. I'm saying that up front. Okay? But I I've, I've got a lot of experience here, so it's a, it's not just one anecdotal thing to make a overgeneralization. I've seen this a lot in all three of these camps. I have consistently seen premillennial people have the most passion for the issues and the least purpose and planning in how to actually win because they don't believe they can. And they will fight like the Dickens to do as much good as they can. I've heard that a lot. We can only do so much good. And then that ultimately devolves into justifying vo- voting for really poor politicians because you're, quote, doing as much good as we can. Wow, that's topical. <laughs> yes. Here's what I've seen from people with the amillennial view. I've, I've, literally, I've literally had conservative Lutherans who have that viewpoint. Which, that was Luther's eschatology, by the way. That was, that was an es- instrumental eschatology in Germany. I hate, to, hate the Hitler references, but one of the ways that the church in, in, in 1930s Germany sold out to Hitler was this notion of, well, you know, the Iron Cross is the city of man, like Augustine taught us, and, and the crucifix is the city of God, you know? So, um, there's no reason why we can't serve the Third Reich. And then you had you had some of the Lutheran ministers Bonhoeffer and others say uh, that's that doesn't mean what you think it means, (laughs) okay, all right. But here's what I've seen with those who buy into whose eschatological driving force is that every state I've gone to to help organize the notion of personhood or life begins at conception, the Catholic Church has opposed us in every state: Iowa, North Dakota, Oklahoma, uh, Mississippi. There's another one I'm forgetting. Five states I've, I've, I've either covered or been a part of helping to organize, and the archdiocese has, has, has opposed us, even though they were on the ground literally three seconds after Roe v. Wade, long before Protestants even knew what abortion was or cared. Catholic Church was on the ground nanoseconds after Roe v. Wade. They have opposed us defining life at conception at every state I've ever gone to. Why? Their argument is. We have to respect Roe versus Wade as the law of the land, and we are trying to make accommodations to, within that law. That is called legal positivism. The, that is the worldview that whatever the accepted authority on earth at that time says is the law is the law. And Catholics,
1: please listen carefully to this because what's he's ironic exactly about,
2: right. What's ironic about this is post-millennialists get their theonomical conclusions about whether God's law trumps human law from Catholic theologians like Augustine and Aquinas. Last week, we celebrated whose birthday? Martin Luther King Jr.'s. What did I read on the air to commemorate his birthday? Letter from a Birmingham jail. Letter from a Birmingham jail in which he quotes whom? Black Southern Baptist minister. Who's he quoting? Uh, Augustine. Augustine and Aquinas. Aquinas' views on natural law, anything that comes from the natural man that does not square with the law of God is no law at all. That's Aquinas' own teaching, St. Thomas Aquinas. Augustine, the same thing. Blackstone, who was the founder of the English common law system we got our legal system from, was heavily influenced by these men. Today's Catholic Church does not abide by that by and large. At least at the at least at the leadership level, it does not. Now, what's now the personhood movement itself was started by Catholic pro-lifers like filmmaker Jason Jones and others who are revolting against the own the, the own catechesis that their own church leaders are putting out right now. Cuz they see what I'm advocating as yeah. the fulfillment of what Aquinas and Augustine were saying. But legal positivism is this idea that, hey, when we're in the city of man, let me put it very simply. I can't put it more simply than this. When in Rome, do as the Romans. That's yeah. essentially what they're saying.
1: It's a more elegant version of seat at the tableism. I, I, I How can I, if I don't play the game, Steve, how do I change exactly. anything? I have to be here.
2: And this is where you get great pro-life warriors like Father Frank Pavone at Priest for Life now advocating that states pass laws that anesthetize children before they're killed. That's wicked. I'm sorry. And I would say that to Frank's face. It is wicked to say, we will sign off on a bill that kills children if you promise to anesthetize the child first. That's that's just gas chamber stuff. That's just Stalin-esque. It's bad. But that's ultimately where this viewpoint will take you, is you will negotiate down to the last morsel what the city of man is willing to give you. And then you have the post-millennial view. Now, here's what I've seen with a lot of, mostly Calvinists have this view. It's, I've always found it interesting, people that think they win in history, like no one's ever good enough for them. I, I've, never, I've seen this a million times. I've, the hardest Now the hardest people of all to work with are the ones who think they're going to win. I'm, I can, you can easily motivate the ones who think they're going to lose. You can easily motivate the ones who think they can win to a point. Getting them to actually think once you get them motivated they can win is the hard part. Upselling them is the hard part. But getting Catholics, getting, getting convicted Catholics and, and premillennial eschatology Protestants into the game, I've got a lot of experience with this, guys. Not that hard. Convincing them to concoct a strategy for ultimate victory is cold fusion. Got a lot of experience with that, too. All right. And, and I've the scars to prove it. Okay. On the other hand, trying to get the guys who think they're going to win to actually get involved at all, that's pulling teeth, man. That is pulling teeth. No candidate's ever good enough. Somebody, somebody sinned uh, 28 years ago, and therefore they can't be used now. No one is ever good enough. I'm like, how do you think you're gonna win? You think you're gonna win, yet no one's ever good enough. Well, behind all that, is there just a, Jesus has got this? That, yeah, some of that, sure. And, and when you work your daily life and career for over a decade has been you and uh, and participating in community with others and fellowship with others with the same convictions applying their Christianity and you sit and watch how all these three camps have Either wrongly fulfilled what they what they think their eschatology says, or just by and large, just disregard it whatsoever, it makes it really hard to buy into one particular eschatological view. So here's mine. Jesus says like a thief in the night. Preach. That's my view. Preach. I have now. That's in my closed hand, like a thief in the night. In my open hand, I I I can have all the other. What's What's an antichrist? Who is it? Will there be? Is it a literal one? What's Daniel's statue really say? Because you know, when you go through the kingdoms of Daniel's statue, all the kingdoms are conquered, except we often think the last one is Rome. But Rome never conquered Greece. It absorbed it, it absorbed its culture, language, everything. So I'm not sure about that translation. In fact, if we were going to go literal, conquer conquering empires. You can make a case. The last the, the the feet of clay is is Islam. That's who conquered Rome, the Greco-Roman Empire, Constantinople, the Ottoman Empire, the Caliphate. And do we not we see them on? In, if you wanted to make a futuristic idea of a reconstructive empire of the feet of da, the feet of clay and Daniel's statue, it's a much better argument for it to be the Caliphate, looking at it through that lens, than it is Rome. But we like to Ameri-Centro everything. So a lot of our eschatology in America is America as the center of the universe. We're irrelevant eschatologically, and in a biblical worldview, Jerusalem is the center of the universe. You have, you have that's the thing. You have to see this through the lens of the people who wrote it, through the and and, and the people they were writing it to, not your ex post facto lens. Well, yes, two plus two still equals four, but you started with the second two and worked your way backwards to get that equation as opposed to the first front to back. Now, I've probably done more than answered Robin's question. I've offended so many people at this point. I'm just now going to stop and say, well, Steve, what would you have us do? Work like it's up to you. Pray like it's up to him. Do that. Final thoughts, Todd.
1: When we talked about doing this, I hoped we'd just come in in a solid, safe five. Honestly, uh, this was this was a ten, and I'd be hard pressed to find something more substantive uh, about combining faith and politics anywhere. Hon- honestly, this this was fantastic, and you did you you. I think it was uh, not because we talk about this more often than others, but I, I think the average layman will have heard something where they don't have to sit and go, you know, go get uh, their uh, dictionary uh, to find out what the heck you're talking about. I mean, really, I think it was laid out in a way that was very accessible.
0: That was one of the most fascinating uh, podcasts I think we've had, uh, at least that I've ever sat in on. And I think based on everything that you have laid out, Steve, it is okay for people to have their own opinions or views or positions, again, um, about eschatological things, but the key is at the very end. Basically, what you're saying is, um, when when you say "work like it's up to you, pray like it's up to God," is answering the question every day with every act that you do, with every um, with every advance that you make, whether it's in the public sphere or within the church is how can I most glorify God? Because if we can start from that as our aim point, as our common ground, then I think a lot of things will fall into place. But how can I most glorify God with this action, this action, um, or with whatever I am doing? I think that we'll be on the correct path. Uh, But I agree that at the end of the day, uh, nocturnal thiefism is, is where we're at as far as our eschatological views, like a thief in the night, uh, that's that's where it needs to be so well thank you guys
2: and um, if I don't mind offending people when I think you need to be offended or I'm doing it on purpose I, I I really try to go out of my way not to offend any particular viewpoint on here and so if I did pardon my naivete amateur status here as a theologian um, and um, I, I sincerely hope you accept my preemptive apology that I did really try to do this as fairly as I could. And if We'll find falls, out that if, viewer if feedback tomorrow, won't we? Yeah. And if it fell short, then you just know that uh, I've been weighed, measured and found wanting. That'll do it for today's podcast. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. We will be back at it again tomorrow for a little feedback Friday. Until then, John 317.
0: is Steve Dace.